thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Just want to remind you of my book, 40 Days in Philippians. You can get that through G3 Press. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can also go to Amazon and get the Kindle version. It would be a great gift this Christmas season for somebody to grow closer to the Lord Jesus as they do a daily devotion for 40 days expositionally, verse by verse, through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Over the years, I've interacted with provisionists. They used to be called traditional Southern Baptists. And for the most part, I have interacted with Dr. Leighton Flowers at Soteriology 101. But in this podcast, I want to deal with Adam Harwood. Adam Harwood is not as widely known among provisionist circles because he is a professor, he has a PhD, he's written a systematic theology, and so it's good to interact with the scholarly aspects of provisionism. Not to say that Leighton Flowers isn't scholarly, but he... he uh, basically does podcast and YouTube um, videos more on the popular level to get provisionism out there. But I want to deal with an essay that Dr. Adam Harwood wrote called Inherited Sinful Nature, a view permissible as both biblical and Baptist. Now, back in 2007, he did his Ph.D. dissertation in theology through Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary on the issue of infant salvation, inherited guilt, original sin. And so this is a modified, um, shorter version of what he argued for in his doctoral thesis. But what I want to do is I want to show the difference between what we as Reformed Baptists understand about original sin, original guilt, inherited guilt, imputed guilt, corruption, condemnation, all the issues related to what happened when Adam fell in the garden. And what I want to do is I want to interact with Adam Harwood's propositions, but I also want to show you the differences in our confessions because he is basically borrowing from or arguing from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That is the current doctrinal statement that is widely used by Southern Baptists. There's been a change over the years. The first Baptist faith and message was from 1925. More Calvinistic, we'll talk about that. It was modified in 1963 under the leadership of Herschel Hobbes, who was definitely anti-Calvinistic, was moving it further away from its Calvinistic roots. And then the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 basically uses almost the same language as the 1963. And we're going to compare that to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 to show you the difference in how Reformed Baptists understand this this doctrine versus how modern-day provisionist, traditional Southern Baptists understand this. So let's just interact with Adam Harwood's theology. And and what I want to do is I want to begin with the Scripture because this teaching comes from Romans chapter 5. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, when we see the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, 
we see what actually happened. There's not a lot of theological commentary. We do see guilt. We do see shame. We do see them fashioning fig leaves to try to cover up their sin. We see um, Adam blaming God for putting Eve there to tempt him. We see Eve blaming the serpent. We see hiding. We so, so we see the effects of the fall immediately, but we don't see the full theological explanation of what actually happened. And so Paul, in Romans chapter 5, gives us probably the clearest explanation from an apostolic inspired scripture as to what are the ramifications or the effects of the fall. So let's just read Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that's talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's just stop there and let's go back and let's go down to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, what Paul is doing here in this passage of Scripture is he's comparing the work of Adam in the garden as our federal representative and what he did to impact all humanity versus the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life that Adam never could and obeyed God in thought, word, and deed and secured for us our redemption through his death on the cross. And so it's interesting the language that Paul uses here to talk about the ramifications or the impact of the fall. And there are three things I want to draw your attention to. Because oftentimes, there's only one issue that's discussed. And that's talking about verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is where we all agree. We agree that through Adam's one sin, death and sin came into the world. So there is a physical death that comes into the world because of what Adam did, and there's a spiritual death. And so there's no argument between the provisionist and the Reformed Baptist as to whether sin came into the world through Adam or whether death came into the world or the corruptions thereof came into the world through Adam. That's not debatable. What's debatable is are infants or are all people born not only with original sin inherited from Adam, but are all humans born under condemnation and guilty for sin, even before they actually commit a sin. Because here's the issue. What Adam Harwood's going to argue and what other provisionists argue is that infants are born with original sin, but not original guilt. They don't actually become guilty. They don't actually become transgressors. They don't actually deserve condemnation until they're old enough to know right from wrong and actually commit a specific sin. But I want you to notice what Paul says there in this passage of Scripture. 
It says in verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Okay, the one trespass of Adam brought condemnation, brought guilt, condemnation. And then in verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. So sin came into the world, death came into the world, and condemnation resulted from that one trespass, and death reigned through that one trespass. And I want to show you verse 18 because this is the key passage. Verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. One trespass, Adam's sin in the garden, led or resulted to condemnation for all men. That's a universal statement. Adam's one trespass in the garden led to condemnation for all men. Now the question becomes, is that, is that condemnation something that all men are born under, or is that condemnation something that they earn once they become old enough to know right and wrong and actually commit a sin? Is the condemnation as a result of personal sin, or is condemnation or guilt passed down or inherited through um, Adam in that original sin verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous okay we're made sinners this talks about nature then we are made sinners we are born with a sin nature we are born corrupt so here is what the reformed baptist understanding is of original sin and original guilt we believe that all people are born with original sin inherited from Adam that leads us to be born with a nature that is corrupt, a nature that is depraved, a nature that is spiritually dead and in bondage to sin, and that nature deserves condemnation even before an actual act of sin is committed. And so because of that nature, we will eventually commit sin. And we will be guilty for those sins committed. But we're also guilty for the nature. See, the difference is, are we guilty for the nature that we're born with or are we guilty for the sins we commit? And so the Reformed Baptist says we're guilty for both. We are under condemnation. We are held guilty for the nature that we inherited from Adam, that imputed guilt that corrupt nature, and we're also held guilty for the actual sins we commit when we become actual transgressors. And so this is where the difference is between the two views. The provisionists say you're only guilty for the sins that you commit, and then you become an actual transgressor deserving of punishment, deserving of guilt. You're born with an inclination to sin. You're born with the sin nature, but you're not born guilty. That guilt is not imputed to you from Adam. You get guilty. You get under condemnation once you're old enough to know right from wrong, and then you actually commit a sin. So I wanted to show you the language here in Romans chapter 5 that Paul makes an argument that sin came into the world through Adam. Death spread. We all became under condemnation because of that one trespass. Death reigned because of that one trespass. 
We were made sinners because of that trespass, and that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Okay, so let's interact with Adam Harwood. So he says there are three questions that need to be answered, and these are the questions he brings up in his essay. First, in the Bible, are infants and adults treated the same way? That's question number one. Question number two, does the Bible teach that infants are already guilty of sin or only that they inherit a sinful nature and will later become guilty? Okay, that's, that's the main point of contention. And then in the Bible, does God judge our sinful nature or does he judge only our sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions? Okay, now, thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Oftentimes, it's mainly limited to actions. Does God judge our actions or does God judge our our nature so those are those are three very good questions and so I do appreciate Dr. Harwood getting to the rub getting to the the crux of the issue where there is a major difference and so I will go through his arguments and and so number one he says infants are people I think we would all agree upon that I'm not going to disagree with him on that but then number two he says infants are impacted by sin are impacted by sin. He says, one of the questions people ask before they read my book is this, if infants are not guilty of sin, then why do some infants die? Isn't death a result or wage of sin? That's a great question. Death is a result or wage of sin, and some infants die. But it does not follow that their deaths are a result of either personal or inherited guilt. Instead, death is a result of God's universal judgment against sin. Even infants can be caught up in the horrible effects of living in a fallen world. So he would say that the reason that infants die is because, or that infants die in, let's say, in childbirth or stillbirth or, um, you know, infants dying before they reach that age of quote-unquote accountability, that that is the effects of the fall, that that child is not dying because he's specifically guilty of sin. Now, I'm not going to argue with him on this. I, I do agree with him that infants are impacted by sin. Infants are impacted by the fall. And we don't know why God in his sovereignty ordains or allows some infants to die in childbirth, stillbirth, miscarriages, all those types of, of things that are tragic, that are horrific, that, that couples have to go through that we need to be very sensitive to in helping and come alongside. I mean, as a pastor, I've, I've had to walk through this with many couples over the years that have had miscarriages. Um, it's, it's a time of grieving. It's a time of, of really just um, where, where I, as a pastor, have to come alongside and encourage and, and share the love of Christ with these families. So, yes, I do believe that infants are impacted by sin. And then I agree with him that he says infants are not sinless. We reject Pelagianism. Well, that, that's, that's excellent. We're thankful that they reject Pelagianism. Again, Pelagianism is the view brought forth by Pelagius, the British monk back in the 400s who was arguing against Augustine. Pelagius basically believed that we're born a blank slate, that every single human being is born neutral, that there are no effects of Adam's fall, that basically you're born a blank slate and you will, by imitation, 
follow Adam's example in the garden and you'll eventually sin because of your environment. But there's nothing that you're born with as far as a nature, a corrupt nature, that would lead you to commit actual sins. You're born basically neutral or a blank slate where you can choose to sin by following Adam's example. And obviously Pelagianism is a heresy. It's been um, deemed heretical by three church councils. And so we, we, we are thankful that infants are not sinless, that they're not Pelagian. Okay, here's number four. Infants inherit from Adam death, not guilt. Death, not guilt. And that is his main difference between the Reformed Baptist understanding of that. He would say that, um, I'm going to quote him here, he says, we, we would say that one must personally ratify the work of Christ in our life by responding in repentance and faith to be saved. In a similar way, we must personally ratify the work of Adam in our life. We do the first time we commit an act of sin after we know the difference between right and wrong. We must become guilty. And he's quoting Millard Erickson. And basically he's saying that if you, if you take the one-to-one example of Christ's righteousness being imputed and Adam's guilt being imputed, you have to believe in Jesus in order to receive the benefits of justification so justification is not automatic it's not something you're born with he uses the word ratification you have to trust in christ i.e you've got to ratify the work of christ on your behalf and then once you do that then you are justified he says in the same way you're not born automatically guilty for adam's sin you have to personally ratify that work of adam and commit an actual sin and so one of the things that we um would disagree with on here is that we don't use the words personally ratify the work of Christ in our life by responding in repentance and faith. Uh, that, that, that language is not Reformed language, or I don't think it's biblical language. Obviously, we believe that the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ's redemption to the elect through effectual calling and regeneration. And so, regeneration precedes faith, and so those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, those whom Jesus has specifically died for on the cross, the Holy Spirit will, in fact, in time, bring those to faith through sovereign regeneration. They're not ratifying the work of Christ. Um, they are being regenerated by God's sovereign power. Let's continue to look at his argumentation because basically, I want to deal with the, the main rub of his arguments as he deals with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. He says, if the Bible teaches that sin and death, not guilt, comes from Adam, then when does a person become guilty? He says, although there is no age of accountability in the Bible, there are conditions for accountability. And he says, number one, you know the difference between right and wrong. Number two, you knowingly commit your first sinful act. And then here's his argument. Only after those two conditions are fulfilled is a person guilty before God and under condemnation. That's his argument. That you do inherit sin. You inherit guilt from Adam. I mean, death from Adam, but you do not inherit that guilt. And so when do you become guilty? 
According to the provisionists, according to most traditional Southern Baptists that are not Reformed, when does a person become guilty? When are you truly under, under condemnation? When do you become an actual, as they say, an actual transgressor under condemnation? Well, he says there's two conditions that have to be met. Number one, you have to know the difference between right and wrong. And number two, you have to knowingly commit your first sinful act. And, and I would say, yes, that is what we would traditionally call the age of accountability, although there's not an actual age in the Bible, like seven or eight or whatever. And so, yes, there comes a point where an infant or a toddler will know right from wrong. They're, 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 they're morally able to understand right from wrong, and they knowingly commit their first act of, of sin. And he says that only then, at that point of the first actual sin, does that child actually become guilty? Are they actually under condemnation? At that point, do they deserve condemnation? Before that, they just had inherited sin. They had a sin nature, but they weren't actually guilty. And so basically what he's arguing is that the nature, that the sin, God, God does not judge our sin nature, but God judges sinful actions. God doesn't judge our sin nature, but God only judges our actions. And that's really his final point in this argument. He would say, in the Bible, God judges sinful actions, not our nature. So, his argument is that infants inherit from Adam death, not guilt. Infants are impacted by sin, and that Infants are free from condemnation, but will later become guilty for sins committed after they develop moral knowledge and they commit that first sin, and that in the Bible, God judges sinful actions, not our nature. Now, let's just interact with the confessions and see how this theology has changed in Baptist life over the years. Let's first start with the 1689, Second London Baptist Confession. This is the Reformed Baptist Confession that almost all Reformed Baptists hold to. It's, it's almost very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith, so our Presbyterian brothers and sisters also understand it this way. But let's just deal with in Baptist life. So I'm going to go into the chapter on of the fall of man and sin and the punishment thereof in chapter 6. And I'm going to go to paragraph 3. It says this, they, talking about Adam and Eve, they, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Now, paragraph 3 says that the guilt of Adam was imputed and the corrupt nature conveyed to all their posterity. So, the 1689 argues that not only was the corrupt nature something we're born with, but we are born with Adam's guilt imputed to us. And one of the things I w I'd like to show you is that um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, 
where Paul talks about us, actually back in verse 1, talks about us being spiritually dead. And then in verse 3, he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's an important word that Paul uses, by nature. The only other place that Paul uses that Greek expression is in Galatians. And, and the meaning means by birth. We are by birth children of wrath. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't say we earned God's wrath by committing sins that we are guilty for. That's a, a view that Adam Harwood and others could agree with, that we become children of wrath as a result of personal sin that we committed. But Paul says we were by nature children of wrath. He doesn't talk about any type of specific sin that was committed or first committed or an understanding of right and wrong. He ties it back to our very nature. We were born as children of wrath. In other words, we're born deserving the wrath of God We're born deserving condemnation, not because of a choice that we made. Yes, that does deserve God's wrath, but Paul ties it back to before we make a choice, before we commit that first sin, it's by our nature. And that's what the 1689 argues for, is that 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 guilt of sin was imputed. Now you go back to paragraph 4, it says, From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. So there's the term actual transgressions, but the the transgressions proceed from the nature. So the nature that we're born with, being children of wrath, having corruption, having total depravity, being spiritually dead, and also being spiritually guilty from that nature proceeds actual transgressions. And so the reason we actually sin is because of our nature. Our sin nature causes us to commit actual sins in thought, word, and deed. And then it says in the final paragraph 5, the corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motion thereof are true and properly sin. It's talking more about the fact that we do, in, that, that original sin does not go away even once we become regenerated. So the 1689 is very clear that when Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness, that death came upon all, we were dead in sin, that every part of our being is impacted, and that we inherited not only the corrupt nature, but guilt was imputed and that we are by nature children of wrath and are due condemnation. So the 1689 affirms not only original sin, but original guilt. Now let's go to a comparison between the the, the three different iterations of the Baptist faith and message. So under chapter 3 of the Baptist faith and message under man, Let's look at the 1925, the 1963, and the 2000. And I just want to show you how it's changed. So here's what it says in the 1925 version. It talks about man. He was created in a state of holiness under the law of his maker, but through the temptation of Satan, he transgressed the command of God and fell from his original holiness and righteousness, whereby his posterity inherited nature corrupt and in bondage to sin, and are under condemnation. And as soon as they are capable of moral action, become actual transgressors. Okay, so there's a modified version there. This is a little bit modified, a modified Calvinism. It does say that we inherit a nature, 
We inherit a corrupt nature. It does say that we are born in bondage to sin. It does say we're born under condemnation. So without fully outright saying that we inherit that guilt imputed, it it doesn't use imputed guilt language, but it does say we inherit a corrupt nature. We inherit being in bondage to sin. We are under condemnation. And then it says as soon as they're capable of moral action, they become actual transgressors. So there's a modified view there. But it still seems in the 1925 to be stronger on inherited guilt that we're born under condemnation, that we're born spiritually dead. Without outright using the word imputed guilt the way the 1689 does, it it is still Calvinistic in its understanding. Now let's get to the 1963. This is where um, Herschel Hobbes, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and is also the, the leader of the committee that wrote the 1963 and also in his commentaries, moved staunchly away from Calvinism into more of an Arminian and what we would call today provisionistic understanding of this issue. So let's read the 1963. It says, Man was created by a special act of God in his own image and is the crowning work of his creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Adam, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence. Okay, this is very similar language to the 1925. Whereby his posterity inherit a nature and environment inclined towards sin. Now notice the, di- the difference. They inherit a nature and environment inclined towards sin. The 1925 says his posterity inherit a nature corrupt and in bondage to sin, and under condemnation. Notice the softening of the language. Now it's they inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. I do not like the language inclined. It makes it almost sound Pelagianism that you have a nature that's going to incline you towards sin, which means you may or may not sin, or you'll eventually sin, or there's an inclination. But it doesn't say anything about inherit a nature corrupt, being in bondage to sin, under condemnation. It's just that they inherit a nature and environment inclined towards sin. And then it says, as soon as they are capable of moral action, become a transgressor and are then under condemnation. Notice they reverse the order. Before in the 1925, it says you were born under condemnation and as soon as you became capable of moral action, you become an actual transgressor. Here they say they are capable of moral action, become transgressors, and are under condemnation. So there's the change. In the 1963, they're explicitly saying you're born with an environment inclined towards sin and that once you commit that first sin, then you become an actual transgressor and then you're under condemnation. So the 1963 has softened total depravity. It's softened original sin and it has taken away completely original guilt. It uses the terms like you have an inclination towards sin. You have an environment towards sin. That, that, I don't like that language at all because it sounds very Pelagian. I know it's not, but it sounds Pelagian. Okay, and then you get to the 2000, which is the most current one. And let's just look at the language. It says, Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original in- innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature an environment inclined towards sin. Okay, it keeps the same actual language. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. 
So it, it almost has the same exact language. So from the 1963 to the 2000, there's been no change. And so what has happened is that the original Baptists, the Reformed Baptists, the particular Baptists, the, the 1689 Baptists of England, and then, of course, those of us today who hold to the 1689, the Reformed Baptists, we would affirm not only original sin, but also total depravity, total inability, spiritual bondage to sin, spiritual deadness, and inherited guilt that makes all people born under condemnation. So we are condemned not only for the nature that we're born with, but we're also condemned for the actions that we commit. The 1963 comes along and totally changes the trajectory. We're now, according to the Southern Baptists of 1963, we're born with a nature that's corrupt and inclined towards sin, and we don't actually become under condemnation or guilt until we actually commit our first sin. Now, what's the implications of all this? What, what difference does it make? Sometimes it sounds like we may be splitting hairs. Well, the issue becomes pastorally. Like, what, what's the pastoral or, or what's the conclusion? And so here's the conclusion that the we as a church hold to and a conclusion I think most Reformed Baptists would hold to, and that would be all infants who die are saved and go to heaven. I'm not a hyper-Calvinist that would say only elect infants, and there are unelect infants, therefore that some infants that die, you know, are, are, are going to hell or whatever. And so I, I do believe that all infants, so this, this includes aborted babies, stillborn babies, miscarriage babies, babies or infants that die before they, they reach that age of understanding right and wrong. I do agree with Adam Harwood that there is a, an age where a, 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 an infant or a toddler understands right from wrong, and they do actually commit deeds in the body. And, they will, and, and so all infants dying before that time, and again, it's not a specific set time, I believe are, are, are covered by the blood of Christ, and they are saved. Now, here's the issue, and this is where the Calvinism in me comes to play, whereas the Arminian or the Provisionist may have a difficult time. We believe that regeneration precedes faith. So we believe that God can sovereignly, or God does sovereignly reach down into the recesses of the heart and soul and mind and cause a spiritually dead person to come alive. And once God does that, the person then responds with repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are the fruit of regeneration, not the cause. And so anytime a person confesses faith in Christ, anytime a person trusts in Christ, it's because God has done the prior work of regeneration in that heart to bring about that spiritual change. And so in the other viewpoint, in the provisionist viewpoint or the Arminian viewpoint, you exercise faith, and then when you exercise faith according to your free will, then God regenerates you. You're regenerated as a result of you exercising faith. Well, here's the problem. If you are spiritually dead, you cannot exercise faith. You cannot call on the name of the Lord. So really, in the Arminian or the Provisionist scheme, it, there's, a, there's a hopelessness related to infant salvation because no infant or no person can ever cry out in faith unless God first does that act of regeneration. And so here's the point. In those infants that die, I believe God regenerates them 
makes them spiritually alive, overcomes the effects of original sin, overcomes the effects of original guilt based upon the blood of Christ, and they are saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. They just haven't been able to express it verbally or outwardly the way that most people do when God regenerates them. So they are regenerated. We have evidence of, of infants being regenerated. We think about John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. It says the Holy Spirit leapt within him. So we do have evidence of the Holy Spirit being evidently involved in the life of infants that aren't, that aren't even born yet. And so when we think about the trajectory of theology, it's very interesting to see how the 1689 is very clear on original sin, original guilt, how it gets modified in the 1925, how it gets further modified in 1963. And then today you have provisionist Southern Baptists that hold to original sin but not original guilt. And then you have Reformed Baptists that hold to both. And so hopefully in this short podcast, it's been good to interact with a scholar, Adam Harwood. I've interacted with him over the years and had some correspondence. He's a very cordial, um, amiable person, and, and I appreciate his work. And I would say this, I appreciate when the provisionists do scholarly work and put forward positive cases for their theology. Oftentimes, it seems like what most of them do is they blast Calvinism and, and try to um, poke holes in Calvinism as opposed to giving a positive affirmation of what they actually believe. And so when there are those times when people like Adam Harwood and others put forth their theology in positive terms, we're appreciative of that. And so hopefully this has been a beneficial podcast to think through these issues as far as original sin and original guilt and how their trajectory has changed over the years. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Have a great Christmas season and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.